All right. So this morning for our teaching, we're going to start by playing a game. All right. I'm calling it like game show style. Name that. Do we have the title here? Name that genre. Name that genre. Okay. Sounds exciting, right? So I'm going to give you a quote. And we're going to shout out what you think the genre for that quote would be. If, like the category of writing that you would classify this quote as. All right? Sound good? All right. Once upon a time, there was a young princess named Snow White. Fairy tale. Great, great. All right. Mitosis is a fundamental process for life. During mitosis, a cell duplicates all of its contents, including its chromosomes, and splits to form two identical daughter cells. Yeah, biology, textbooks, scientific nonfiction, all of those sound good. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take up arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. Shakespeare, poetry, soliloquy, Shakespearean drama, Hamlet, to be exact, yes. Um, Okay, born into slavery in Maryland. Harriet Tubman escaped to freedom in the North in 1849 to become the most famous conductor on the Underground Railroad. Yeah, biography, good. U.S. history, that would also be correct. Um, Combine, do I have this one? Combine, is that one there? I think I might be missing one. Okay, all right, combine white sugar. Just listen to it. Brown sugar, salt, eggs, vanilla, and instant espresso if using in the bowl of a stand mixer fitted with the whisk attachment. Recipe, yes. Nonfiction cookbook to make brownies if you're wondering. By Stella Parks. Um, okay. Next one. I am not throwing away my shot. I am not throwing away my shot. Hey, yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. Hamilton, musical theater, hip-hop, history, kind of like all those genres mixed together, right? All right, one more. Last one. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was without shape and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the watery deep. But the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. (laughs) What do you think? Christian myth, poetry, creation story. What did you say? Creation story. Interesting, right? What do we call that? Bible. That's a good catch one. But it's true that there are some various genres to be reckoned with, even within the big category of Bible. All right? Now, I'm starting with this game and this, like, exploration of genre because I think it's super relevant to the topic of the new teaching series I'm starting today, where we're going to look at some of the earliest stories in the Bible. I'm calling the series Origin Stories as we look at some of the episodes related Uh, Mostly in Genesis, we might get to Exodus, we'll see. The first books of the Hebrew Bible, or what some call the Old Testament. And some of us have probably heard these stories our whole life, but as we've aged, we might find it hard to understand what to do with them, right? How do we square a six-day creation with what natural science has demonstrated? Can the creation described in Genesis actually square with evolution? What about how are we supposed to understand fantastical elements like talking snakes, in a Garden of Eden. Are we supposed to believe that that happened in a historical sense? 
What about the whole flood story? What are we supposed to think about a God who would wipe out most living creatures by drowning them? Shouldn't we find that pretty disturbing? As opposed to a cute story we tell our kids with lots of sweet, fuzzy animal pictures, right? This summer, I thought it would be fun to press into some of those questions and explore them together. Hopefully feeling free, maybe liberated, to ask our hard questions and perhaps find some helpful answers and also be okay with not finding answers in a context that's striving to be safe, diverse, and Jesus-centered. Our kids actually are doing the same thing. So they are going to be doing these same stories, maybe not every week the same one, but the same group of stories. So for those of us who are parents, my hope is that we can be having some fun conversations as we track these things together. So as you may or may not know, the earliest stories in Genesis and Exodus aren't actually just stories that are vital to Christians, right? These stories were crafted in Jewish community and are still the heart of their sacred texts, their Torah. They're also formative stories for the Muslim faith. So recognizing this, we're going to actually have the opportunity in this series to hear from friends outside of our community in this series. So I have made a friend recently, uh, Rabbi Dorothy Richman, and she's a scholar of Hebrew Bible, and she's agreed to come and deliver two teachings in the series, sharing her perspective as a scholar and Jewish rabbi for us to consider. So that's exciting. It's going to be the first Sunday in July and the first Sunday we're together in August. So I hope you can join us for those. But we're going to ta- start today kind of kicking off the series by looking at the story of creation. Okay, a story that's actually told in two stories. Okay, two creation tales, if you could say. And we're not going to have time to dig into them super exhaustively, but I'm just hoping that we can kind of handle these first stories and use that as a template for the ways that we might handle texts like this going forward. Okay, so the purposes of of our of this time will mainly be will for the purpose of time we'll mainly focus on the first one, but we need to look at some of the second creation story as well, just to give us some context. Okay, so we're just going to do this. It's, we're not going to be able to dig in crazy deep because it's, it's a lot of text. But, um, but we're going to try our best to at least get a sense of the kind of positioning we might take uh, in order to handle these kind of stories. So to begin, I'm going to read the whole first creation story. And I invite you, I mean, this is a story that has been created to be a great story to listen to, right? I mean, I think that is generally where it came from. Was, it, was, it was spoken orally. Um, It was communicated in that way. So I just encourage you, it is on the screen. You can read along. It's on your sheet if you want to read along. But if you also just want to listen and kind of receive it and see what imagery strikes you and you could close your eyes, just try to, like, allow the story to speak and hear how it communicates. What are the things, what's evocative for you? Okay? All right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was without shape and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the watery deep. But the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, so God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day and the darkness night. There was evening, and there was morning. Marking the first day. 
God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. It was so. God called the expanse sky. There was evening. There was morning. A second day. God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. God said, let the land produce vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so The land produced vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, a third day. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let there be signs to indicate seasons and days and years and let them serve as lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night. And he made the stars also. God placed the lights in the expanse of the sky to shine on the earth, to preside over the day and the night, to separate the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good. There was evening. There was morning. A fourth day. God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. And God created the great sea creatures And every living and moving thing with which the water swarmed according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the water in the seas. And let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning. A fifth day. God said, let the land produce living creatures According to their kinds, cattle, creeping things, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the cattle according to their kinds, and all the creatures that creep along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make humankind in our image, after our likeness. So they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move on the earth. And God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I now give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the entire earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the animals of the earth and to every bird of the air and to all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, 
and it was very good. There was evening. There was morning. The sixth day. The heavens and the earth were completed with everything that was in them. And by the seventh day, God finished the work that he had been doing, and he ceased on the seventh day. All the work that he'd been doing, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because in it he ceased all the work that he had been doing in creation. So we're going to stop there for a moment, take a beat. Notice a little bit of what we've seen. Seems to be a story, right, describing some account of the creation of the cosmos. Seems to reflect a God that's thoughtful and carefully speaking various things into existence. Interestingly, this God doesn't create out of absolute nothingness, but seems to bring order from chaos. There's a dark, watery deep that the creator begins with. And by first speaking light into existence and then separating light from darkness, the work of taming that dark, chaotic water begins. And each thing God creates, God admires. The creator seems happy with the handiwork. The creator creates one thing after another with a sense of building. And then the capstone on the experience is the creation of humans, male and female, who are both uniquely said to be made in this God's image. Then God blesses the whole thing and takes a personal day. Right? All right, now before we unpack this, we're going to just read a few verses forward into what comes right after. And then I'll summarize a little more. So right reading on, we would have hit this. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and heavens. Now no shrub of the field had yet grown on the earth, And no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Springs would well up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the soil of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And it goes on to describe God planting this orchard in Eden and placing the man there and and having him cultivate uh, all of the trees He's there to be like the caretaker of the trees and describing these two special trees, the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then we have um, God noticing the man's lonely, right? And so on. And he, uh, he needs to create companionship for the man. So he makes all the animals and he brings them to the man. And he gives the man the opportunity to name the animals. But as that's happening, it's clear none of them are like a perfect companion for the man. So God puts the man to sleep takes out a rib, creates woman, brings her to him, wakes him up. And in verse 23, we have this. Then the man said, this one at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Second creation tale. Okay, if you're like me, when we put these together, look at all of them, and you want to think critically about what do we do with all this, you have to recognize that there's some complicated questions that have to be dealt with, okay? And hopefully you're aware that likely those questions probably just scratch the surface. But they're a clue that if we want to actually read this and try to get something out of it, we're going to have to dig 
a bit deeper, right? It's not going to be just apparent on the surface. Whatever you see, you read, and that's that. So I've been doing a lot of reading myself this week, particularly leaning on the work of biblical scholar Peter Enns and his book, The Evolution of Adam. I highly recommend if you have questions about how do we think about Genesis, specifically this part of Genesis, um, in light of other things. So relying on this particularly, I'm going to help identify some of the issues that need to be addressed if one would really want to study these passages and understand what they're trying to say. Okay? So we're going to seminary today. This is going to be a headier teaching, not like a lot of personal examples and cute anecdotes. I'm just telling you. This is like the setup for a series where we got to talk Bible talk. All right? So get ready for information download. I have notes if they're helpful You can fill in the blanks. Sometimes that can be helpful to keep tracking. And here comes the first blank we're going to fill in. Here are just some of the issues that need to be considered. Okay, first, inconsistencies between the stories in Genesis 1 and 2. Inconsistencies is the word. Let's name it. They do not match. Okay, when you read Genesis 2... Sure, there might be some places of resonance with the first, but we really don't have to read too far to also see some ways that these stories do not line up. Okay? Now, we don't have the benefit. I have a list we can put up. First off, we don't have the benefit of reading this in Hebrew, but if we did, we would immediately see that there are two different names being used for God in these two different stories. Okay? In Genesis 1, throughout, it is Elohim. Okay? As soon as we switch to the second creation story, we have Yahweh Elohim. Okay? You can, if you dig, if you go over your text, you will notice they translated that in the English to try to reflect it with God versus Lord God. Okay? But it might, it's subtle. But it is meaningful. The word Adam is used in both stories, but seemingly in different ways. It's the word we have for God created humankind, Adam, mankind. And then in the second story, it seems to be being used kind of like as a personal name. This male human being, Adam. Does that make sense? So it really does mean man. There are other words that could have been used. Um, So there seems to be intentional that they are using this for both. Um, But they're using it in different ways, which is notable. And then there's these very specific differences, okay? The duration of creation. It is super clear, the rhythm of Genesis 1, right? That is a six-day creation and a seventh day to rest, right? There's that rhythm of evening, morning, number of days. Verse 1 seems to imply that the whole thing happens in one day. I mean, verse 2. Sorry, story 2 has one day implied. Does that make sense? Okay, setting, Story one has a dark, watery chaos as kind of the beginning grounds. Story two seems to have like a desert oasis, the dry, arid ground, and then water coming up. It's like being irrigated by God, right? It's just a different setting. Then we've got the sequence. 
the sequence of things that are created. So story one, light, firmament, dry land, plants, lights in the sky, sea and sky creatures, land animals, humans, male and female. We are leaving aside fully the questions of like, how do you create light when you haven't created the sun, the moon, or the stars? That's, that's a question that plenty of people have asked. But even accepting it as is, that's one order. And then we've got story two, where God seems to be creating man, male man, Adam first, Garden, trees and river, land animals and birds as potential helpers to Adam. Then finally, woman. It's just a, it's a, it's a very different order. What do you do with that? As you can tell, you know, there's things that don't match. They seem to be two different stories telling us two different accounts of creation. What do we think about that? Another issue that needs to be considered, here's another fill-in-the-blank, connections between these stories and the stories of Israel's cultural neighbors. This is a controversial one. Connections between these stories and the stories of Israel's cultural neighbors. Beginning in 1847, work in the field of archaeology began to have significant implications on how we could read these early texts in Genesis. And that came through the discovery of lots of documents arising from Israel's ancient neighbors. And some of these texts also tell stories about the origins of the cosmos. And upon study, it becomes evident that they bear very striking similarities to the stories in Genesis. That's just real. I'm going to highlight a couple of the most significant just to demonstrate the point, but they're, I mean, they go on and on. Genesis 1 happens to have most in common. There's a, there's a lot of overlap in all these ancient stories, but the one that's the most kind of point-by-point point common uh, is the Babylonian story, Enuma Elish. It's dated likely 7th century BC, which by ancient standards, it's not crazy old, um, but it's likely older than Genesis is probably by a couple hundred years. It is around the time of the Babylonian exile or a bit before it is when this story came. And so this actually is a story that came from the world to which the Israelites would be exiled. Does that make sense? Um, And so I'm just going to read you Peter Enns' list of similarities very briefly. Okay, one thing that's the same. Matter exists independently of the divine spirit. There's some sort of matter in the beginning. In, the, or in, the, in other words, Genesis 1 doesn't describe creation out of nothing, right? It's the establishment of order out of chaos. That's the same. Darkness precedes creation. In Enuma Elish, the chaos symbol is the goddess Tiamat. So it's personified. Chaos is a goddess, of like a water chaotic goddess. Um, and then in Genesis... The chaos symbol is the Hebrew word, and I might butcher this, maybe you know, to just tihom, the deep, which is linguistically related to Tiamat, the goddess. Does that make sense? They are connected. And so then we have light existing before the creation of the sun, moon, and stars in both. Um, and in Enuma Elish, Marduk, who is like the big kind of warrior creator god, fillets the body. Okay, so creation is an act of war in, uh, in the Babylonian text. Okay, this is where it's different. And what happens is Marduk slays Tiamat, slays the chaos, and, um, and then he uses half of her body to create 
the firmament, to create the barrier that Genesis describes as well, a barrier where God separates the waters and holds back the waters above from the waters below. It's the same idea of, of the creator separating, but in the version, the Babylonian version, there's a goddess body that is the, the firmament, the barrier, the dome. With a sequence of days is similar, including the creation of the firmament, the dry land, the luminaries, humanity, that's all the same. Um, and Genesis 2, we could do this as well. It has lots of overlap with lots of ancient stories. Um, and then when you get into Genesis 3, which is the story of, of the serpent and the fall, that also has a lot of parallels all the way through the flood narratives. That's there, okay? So we have internal consistencies between the story to contend with. We have a lot of overlap with ancient stories from other cultures to consider. And we haven't even began to touch on the questions that the stories bring up when we compare either of them with like what natural science has told us over the last few hundred years. So what do we do with it all? Well, I have just a few big takeaways from this kind of analysis that I hope will help us going forward as we press into more of these kinds of stories, as well as some thoughts on Genesis 1 particularly. So let's just look at the three takeaways. And number one is the most important. If you don't remember anything from this, this teaching, I hope you remember this. this. This point is it. When approaching these texts, our fundamental question should not be, what happened? Our fundamental question should not be, what happened? But why were these stories told? And what did they mean to the people who told them? Amen? Our fundamental question should not be, what happened? But why were these stories told? And what did they mean to the people who told them? What happened assumes a genre, right? That gets back to our game. The question assumes that these texts are meant to give some sort of historically accurate, scientifically verifiable view of what went down, some objective truth. It tends to believe, in a Christian context, that because these books are inspired, God has given us the most accurate view of things and that we need to hold as the authoritative view above all else. But to actually make that assumption of asking that question, of expecting it to tell us, quote, what happened on our terms, sets us up for a lot of angst. As we try to reconcile these texts, both with what's happening internally, which is complicated, and what, ha- what we know externally, which is also complicated. And I think lots of Christians have either had to silence information that they found unhelpful. Da, 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 don't tell me about the Babylonian stories. I don't want to hear that. Just don't tell me right? Or they've had to do severe mental gymnastics. Like the the number of people who've tried to synthesize making one and two somehow say the same thing, it doesn't say the same thing. It just doesn't. You have to do a lot of work to try to make that cohere, right? But that's what you have to do if you think the story is supposed to tell us, quote, what happened. And then the reality is countless others have just lost their faith altogether because the reconciling seems too impossible. And if you take it at those terms, it's either it reconciles or there is no God, then that's pretty tough, right? But what if this is simply an issue of genre misunderstanding? 
right? Genre misapplication. What if this is something like asking the Hamilton lyrics to tell us how to make brownies? It's not going to work, right? It's not what they're for. Instead, asking why were these stories told and what did they mean to the people who told them carefully considers the cultural setting in which the stories arose, the genres that were available to them, and the reasons these stories were composed the way they were. Truthfully, it takes a lot more work, right? It does. Not going to lie. It also has the potential of allowing these sacred stories to speak to us in a real way, free from the constraints of our Western post-enlightenment expectations that we would like to put on them. They can speak to us on their own terms. And I'd argue all of this will actually help us understand what God might be communicating through them. So that's the big one. Don't ask what happened. Why were these stories told? What did they mean? Second point, takeaway. Every text, including the texts in our Bible, speaks the language of its culture. Every text speaks the language of its culture. If we want to understand the stories, we have to look at the kind of language they use. This is why I'm super excited to have Rabbi Richmond with us. Because she actually reads and studies all these texts in Hebrew. And I'm sure she will bring insights that none of us are able to access right now. Just because we we don't even see them. But even reading and translation, we are able to think critically in some way about language. Because genre is a kind of language. right? A way of organizing thought into human communication. And just like languages are culturally rooted and deeply connected to human culture... So are all of our forms of expression, art, music, literature, and the genres that arise in those. They all have forms that develop in culture to give voice to experience. So to take the Bible seriously is to take seriously the idea that God relates to humans wherever humans are at. And God comes to speak our human languages, even though all of them, forever, in all time, always represent just just such a small fragment of who God is, right? God inspires us with concepts of God that we can understand and articulate in the languages of our cultures, amen? Jesus was a master at this, right? Not only coming as a human in a particular time and place and fully inhabiting that life and that culture, but he drew on the language of that culture continuously, both from quoting Hebrew scripture and rooting his descriptions and theology in Jewish theology, but also relating the stuff of the cosmos to agriculture, to fishing, to family life, all the everyday stuff of the people that he inhabited life with. And I think what we see happening in Genesis is like the same thing. God's spirit speaking to people through humans who have human language and human genres of communication to work with. So what are we talking about specifically? For the Israelites who collected and wrote these stories, I'm going to call it primordial story. Right? Some of you said creation story. That's not not bad either. But I'll give it a little even primordial. Right? Super ancient is kind of what that communicates. Back before any of us had any history. Deep history time. That was a genre that every culture in the ancient world used to describe how phenomena in the natural world reflected what people believed and what they understood of the divine. 
And Peter Enns puts it this way, I have the quote, explanations for why things are the way they are were sought not in laboratories, telescopes, or therapy, but ultimately in the activity of the gods in primordial time. Divine activity in the deep past helped explain the world and answered questions of meaning and existence. Stories of the deep past gave stability and coherence to life. So the writers and compilers of Genesis weren't asking questions of how cells divided and species developed. They were asking questions about who was shaping and holding the universe. What did it mean? Where did they fit in? And the stories they told about the universe's origins reflected their unique perspective as a people on those things. Okay? We're talking about the language of culture. And for this culture in which this was composed, primordial story was the language. All right. Third takeaway. Every text was composed in a specific time with a specific intent. Every text in a specific time, with a specific intent. Okay, there's a tradition, you may have heard this, that arose that Moses wrote all of the first five books of the Bible, what's called the Pentateuch. It held for hundreds of years, right? And maybe that's what you've been taught. Hardly any scholars, like very, I don't know, I mean, it's, it really is the scholarly consensus at this point that that is not true, that it could not have been written by Moses. I don't have time to get into all the reasons why, but they're pretty compelling, okay? Um, The overwhelming consensus is that these stories were composed by multiple authors over decades, perhaps even over centuries, but they were finally compiled into the written form that we see now after the Babylonian exile. So after the people of God, after Israel was separated from their homeland, taken to Babylon, lived there in exile, and then finally were permitted to return to the land. So in that season of, like, PTSD, right, is when we get our contempt, is when this part of the Bible was composed and compiled. About 500 years or so before Jesus, like a thousand years after Moses, a long time. Most scholars believe there was at least four primary texts that were compiled together to create these first five books. And they are all woven together, like, throughout all five of those books. It's not just, this is one and this is that. They were all many texts that have been put together, like a jigsaw puzzle, okay? Um, And the reason Genesis 1 and 2 look different is because they were two very different stories that came from different places. And then the compilers put them side by side. Often when you have two things where it was like, This person, this source says this, and this source says this. Rather than just picking one, they just put them both. So let's just preserve it all. And we'll let people wrestle through that, right? We don't need to figure out, quote, what happened. We want to document the stories that our community is telling. What about the intent? So that tells us about the setting. The exile was a unique time when the people of God had experienced great trauma. Right? They were ripped from their homeland. Their kingdom was taken from them. Their temple, the seat of worship, had been destroyed. Those who weren't killed were carried off to Babylon. And now the remnant has returned to the homeland, a fragment of what it once was. The people in Israel are traumatized, in need of healing and hope and renewed sense of corporate identity. And these stories were compiled, edited, 
crafted to speak into a people in need of hearing who they were as a people, how they were still connected to the divine they knew as Yahweh. They needed to hear their own identity. This is what these stories speak into. So if all this is true, what might actually the creation account in Genesis 1 have been trying to communicate? I'm just going to paint in real broad strokes a few things. It could go so much deeper. But here's the big picture. Speaking the language of primordial story, Genesis 1 made an argument to the people of God about who their God was, who they as a people were, and how they were distinctive from their cultural neighbors, many of whom they'd experienced as violent oppressors. Amen? Does that make sense? Speaking the language of primordial story, Genesis 1 made an argument to the people of God about who their God was, who they were, and how they were different from the neighbors who had oppressed them, who had warred them, who had killed their brothers and sisters, who had stripped them and taken them to Babylon. So specifically, this account told them things like this. Because we talked a lot about how the accounts are similar to, to other stories, but we didn't talk so much about how they're different. And that's real, too. And the folks who heard these stories would have known the differences. They would have been meaningful. First of all, that their God is one, not a pantheon. All the other cultures told stories of these uh, pantheon of gods who would love and squabble and war just like humans. They looked very human in the way they related Right? And their, their God creates through calm imagination and intention rather than by accident or through violent conflict. Most of these other stories, creation, like I said, was like a battle, was like the effect of some squabble happening in the pantheon. Some war between the gods created stars. Does that make sense? It was like an after effect. But here, it's a very different story. Israel's God presents a very different picture of thoughtfulness, care, patience, enjoyment in creation. No violence. That is very interesting. That would have been very provocative. No violence in creation. Look at the firmament. Right? That's, again, what we talked about. The Babylonian myth, it's this brutal image of this filleted goddess. That is just disgusting. Right? But Yahweh can tame the chaos simply by speaking light into existence, and nobody gets hurt. He just creates this barrier to protect the creation. It's like caring and protective, as opposed to, I'm going to split you open and use your body. Right, it's gross. It's very not me too. <laughs> All right. Here's another piece. Their God does not view humans as slaves, as most of the ancient stories did, but as representatives of the divine who carry agency and authority. Okay, so most of these ancient stories, when humans come along, those become the slaves to the gods. That's their role in the story. But here... We have a picture of humans governing alongside God. This idea of bearing God's image, that again is an ancient world image. In the ancient world, governors or kings 
were seen as image bearers of the gods. Okay, the gods put certain people to rule on their behalf as humans, and they were called the gods' image bearers. And they even would take this a step further. Throughout your kingdom, you would put up statues of either the god or the king in order to remind everyone with the image. That's the image bearer as well. You are governed by this image. You are governed by this god. You, are, you belong to them. Here, we have God saying, every human being, they are my image bearers. They are the ones who have agency to rule with me. They have authority. They have dignity. Does that make sense? That's a powerful image compared to the neighboring images, right? Especially to a people who've been stripped of power for so long to be told, you have dignity, you have worth, you are the ones I have put in my creation to rule with me. Finally, their God recognized the sacred need for rest. This was written after the process of Sabbath had long been practiced and was sacred to the Israelite people. And here they see it reflected in their very creation that God, from the beginning, laid the groundwork for this important Israelite practice. And that is important setting aside a day of rest, creating a template that God would then bring his image bearers into, the people understood that their well-being mattered. Because again, in ancient stories, the gods enslave the humans so they can rest while the humans work. But here, they have a picture from the divine of a God who works and then a God who rests and a God who invites the people he is calling his image bearers to do the same. God is prioritizing the well-being of humanity. Again, pretty powerful, right? Those are just a few things that I think this story actually spoke to the people who heard it. And I think these are powerful words for all of us too, right? Where do we need to be reminded that the God we worship isn't subject to our human drama and conflict, our little human kind of squabbles, but has the power to actually order the chaos in ways that could bring life and blessing and flourishing, not violence? Where do we need to hear the image that no human is meant to live enslaved, either to the gods or to their appointed image bearers? All of us humans are made to carry dignity and agency and the capacity to be co-governors with the divine, not in ways that bring exploitation and oppression of creation, but ways that promote its flourishing. Where do we need to be reminded that we carry within us the need both for labor and for rest, that that need is blessed by the divine who made us in their image? At the beginning of John's gospel, John connects the person of Jesus to the very words, the very language through which these stories said, God spoke the universe into being. John said, he was the word, and the word was made flesh. In doing so, John was proclaiming that Jesus actually could embody in his very self everything that Genesis communicated of the creator. 
As Jesus followers, I think this personalizes the story to us in a deep way. We're invited to experience Jesus present, even in creation, inviting us to see him as the orderer of our chaos, as the one who calls us image bearers, as the one who wants to bring us rest. I think it's a pretty profound story. And when we can leave behind questions it was never meant to ask, I believe there's space for God to speak. Amen? I look forward to doing more of that with you in the weeks to come.